Chapter Two of Marriage, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Marriage, Volume One, by Susan Edmonstone Ferrier. Chapter Two. What transport to retrace our early plays! our easy bliss, when each thing joy supplied, the woods, the mountains, and the warbling maze of the wild brooks. Thompson Many were the dreary moors and ragged mountains her ladyship had to encounter in her progress to Glenfern Castle, and but for the hope of the new world that awaited her beyond those formidable barriers, her delicate frame and still more sensitive feelings must have sunk beneath the horrors of such a journey. But she remembered the Duchess had said the inns and roads were execrable, and the face of the country, as well as the lower orders of the people, frightful. But what significance those things? There were balls, and sailing parties, and rowing matches, and shooting parties, and fishing parties, and parties of every description, and the certainty of being recompensed by the festivities of Glenfern Castle reconciled her to the ruggedness of the approach. Douglas had left his paternal home in Native Hills when only eight years of age. A rich relation of his mother's happening to visit them at that time took a fancy to the boy, and under the promise of making him his heir had prevailed on his parents to part with him. At a proper age he was placed in the guards, and had continued to maintain himself in the favor of his benefactor until his imprudent marriage, which had irritated the old bachelor so much that he instantly disinherited him and refused to listen to any terms of reconciliation. The impressions which the scene of his infancy had left upon the mind of the young Scotsman, it may easily be supposed, were of a pleasing description. He expatiated to his Juliana on the wild but august scenery that surrounded his father's castle, and associated with the idea the boyish exploits, which, though faintly remembered, still served to endear them to his heart. He spoke of the time when he used to make one of a numerous party on the lake, and, when tired of sailing on its glassy surface to the sound of soft music, they would land at some lovely spot, and after partaking of their banquet beneath a spreading tree, conclude the day by a dance on the grass. Lady Juliana would exclaim, How delightful! I dote upon picnics and dancing. Apropos, Henry, there will surely be a ball to welcome our arrival. The conversation was interrupted, for just at that moment they had gained the summit of a very high hill, and the postboy, stopping to give his horse's breath, turned round to the carriage, pointing at the same time with a significant gesture to a tall, thin, grey house, something resembling a tower, that stood in the vale beneath. A small, sullen-looking lake was in front, on whose banks grew neither tree nor shrub. Behind rose a chain of rugged, cloud-capped hills on the declivities of which were some faint attempts at young plantations, and the only level ground consisted of a few dingy turnip-fields enclosed with stone walls, or dykes, as the postboy called them. It was now November. The day was raw and cold, and a thick, drizzling rain was beginning to fall. A dreary stillness reigned all around, broken only at intervals by the screams of the sea-fowl that hovered over the lake, on whose dark and troubled waters was dimly decried a little boat, plied by one solitary being. 
"'What a scene!' at length Juliana exclaimed, shuddering as she spoke. "'Good God! What a scene! How I pity the unhappy wretches who are doomed to dwell in such a place! And yonder hideous grim house! It makes me sick to look at it. For heaven's sake, bid him drive on!' Another significant look from the driver made colour mount to Douglas's cheek as he stammered out, "'Surely it can't be. Yet somehow I don't know.' "'Pray, my lad,' setting down one of the glasses, and addressing the postboy, "'what is the name of that house?' Hoos, repeated the driver. "'Call ye then a hoos? "'Thons, good Glenfern Castle.' Lady Juliana, not understanding a word he said, sat silently wondering at her husband's curiosity respecting such a wretched-looking place. "'Impossible! You must be mistaken, my lad.' "'Why, what's become of all the fine wood that used to surround it?' "'Gin you mean a ween old furs. There is some of them to the fore yet,' pointing to two or three tall, bare, scathed Scotch furs that scarcely bent their stubborn heads to the wind, that now began to howl around them. "'I insist upon it that you are mistaken. You must have wandered from the right road,' cried the now-alarmed Douglas in a loud voice, which vainly attempted to conceal his agitation. "'We'll soon see that.' replied the phlegmatic Scot, who, having rested his horses and affixed a drag to the wheel, was about to proceed, when Lady Juliana, who now began to have some vague suspicion of the truth, called him to stop, and, almost breathless with alarm, inquired of her husband the meaning of what had passed. He tried to force a smile, as he said, "'It seems our journey is nearly ended. That fellow persists in asserting that this is Glenfern, though I can scarcely think it.' If it is, it is strangely altered since I left it twelve years ago. For a moment Lady Juliana was too much alarmed to make a reply. Pale and speechless, she sank back in the carriage. But the motion of it as it began to proceed roused her to a sense of her situation, and she burst into tears and exclamations. The driver, who attributed it all to fears at descending the hill, assured her that she need na be the least feared, for there were na twa cannier beasts atween that and Johnny Groat's hoose, and that they would hay her at the castle door in a crack, gin they were aunts down the bray. Douglas's attempts to soothe his high-born bride were not more successful than those of the driver. In vain he made use of every endearing epithet and tender expression, and recalled the time when she used to declare that she could dwell with him in a desert— her only replies were bitter reproaches and upbraidings for his treachery and deceit, mingled with floods of tears, and interrupted by hysterical sobs. Provoked at her folly, yet softened by her extreme distress, Douglas was in the utmost state of perplexity, now ready to give way to a paroxysm of rage. Then, yielding to the natural goodness of his heart, he sought to soothe her into composure, and at length, with much difficulty, succeeded in changing her passionate indignation into silent dejection. That no fresh objects of horror or disgust might appear to disturb this calm, the blinds were pulled down, and in this state they reached Glenfern Castle. But there the friendly veil was necessarily withdrawn, and the first object that presented itself to the high-bred Englishwoman was an old man clad in a short tartan coat and striped woolen nightcap, with blear eyes and shaking hands, who vainly strove to open the carriage door. 
Douglas soon extricated himself and assisted his lady to alight. Then, accosting the venerable domestic as old Donald, asked him if he recollected him. "'Well that, well that, Master Harry, and you're welcome hame, and ye too, bonny sir,' addressing Lady Juliana, who was calling to her footman to follow her with the macaw. Then, tottering before them, he led the way, while her ladyship followed, leaning on her husband, her squirrel on her other arm, preceded by her dogs barking with all their might, and attended by the macaw screaming with all his strength. And in this state was the Lady Juliana ushered into the drawing-room of Glenfern Castle. End of chapter 2 Recording by Patty Cunningham